Let me ask you if you would please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4 as we continue our study in the gospel according to Mark. This morning we'll look at Mark chapter 4 verses 1 to 20, the parable of the soils or perhaps the parable of the sower. And we'll think this morning about a story for those who can hear. Mark chapter four, verses one to 20. Please follow along as I read. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns, these are, they, these are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word now, we pray that you'd give us understanding. We can relate with the disciples' confusion about not understanding everything that you teach. Yet, for those of us who are of good soil, we can also relate with the reality that you teach us and you help us to understand. Lord, you and you alone knows the reality of every heart that's here, every type of soil that's represented. 
We dare not try to make guesses ourselves, but we trust in your sovereign power and your omnipotence to know all things. We pray, O God, that you would grant us all to have the good soil, not just now, but every time we hear the word of God. We desperately long to bear fruit for you. We love you. We know that we love you because you first loved us. Because we love you, Lord, we want to please you. We want to live for you. We want to obey you. We want to bear fruit that would bring you glory. We understand that it's you who assigns the amount of fruit that will be born in our lives, whether it's 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. We don't desire to covet the fruit of another. What we desire, Lord, is to please you, to keep our eyes completely fixed on you, our Lord and Savior. So as we approach your word, we ask that you would help us to do that very thing. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would teach us, humble our hearts, Help us to be receptive to the word of God now. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the Promise Keepers Conference that had come into Indianapolis and A group of men from our church, a few hours north of Indianapolis, in the great state of Indiana, decided that they would take a group of us youth. We were a small church, smaller than this one, so there weren't very many of us. We could all fit into one person's van. As we pulled up to our friend's house, a friend whose name was John, I was sort of reminiscing on John's story, and I was pretty young, I don't, maybe, maybe seventh grade, maybe eighth grade. I wasn't yet converted, though I thought I was, and I was a seventh grader or eighth grader, so you can fill in the details about that. But I was in my own way reflecting on the story of John's life. It was a pretty amazing story. He went to school with one of the girls in our small group or in our youth group, and She was a Christian, he was not, and somehow her parents let her date a non-Christian. Don't do it, ladies, guys. But it happened, and so I think one of the stipulations for the dating relationship was that if Rachel was her name, if Rachel was going to date John, then John would be required to come to every church event. Rachel and her family were, were faithful, they were at everything all the time. And so John started to come to everything all the time. As an unbeliever, his family was not Christians. They did go to a private Catholic school, but you know how that goes. So I'm not sure how much he had heard the gospel, how much exposure to the gospel that John had in his life, but the reality was that as he came to our church and came to our youth group, he began to be exposed to the gospel. And pretty soon, John became curious about the gospel. He would ask questions, he would uh, take notes, he would just kind of be a little bit more engaged until one day, finally, curiosity gave way to John realizing that it all made sense. He repented of his sins and he believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and that was that. 
He was instantly a new person, you could tell. He was before kind of, you know, not necessarily grumpy, but you might say a little sour. But now, John was always smiling. He was engaged. He would talk to everybody. And as I said, we were even smaller than this, so everybody knew everybody. He would talk to everyone. He would engage. He would uh, answer questions. He would be active and vocal in our youth group. He was an excellent guitarist, so he soon joined the music team and began to lead not only on the, uh, and during corporate worship, but also began to lead our youth group in, in singing. And I mean, it was, it was a, an amazing story. John was several years older than me and several years older than a few other of, of others of us in the group as well. And so it wasn't very long before John began to assume some leadership roles. He taught in our youth group from time to time. I remember the youth pastor wasn't able to be there a few times, and so John was, was asked to lead, and he would lead, and he would challenge us, challenge us with the word and encourage us with the word. And He was on fire, at least it seemed. As we pulled up to John's house that day to pick him up for what we all thought was going to be a great weekend, I was the one who got out of the van and knocked on John's door and was one of his family members that came to the door and answered the door and just said something like, John's not coming this weekend. Now, I would remind you they weren't Christians and they weren't really very excited about a bunch of Christians knocking on their door, so it wasn't exactly a warm, friendly kind of greeting, you know. And I was in seventh or eighth grade, and you know, I'm, I'm still kind of socially awkward. I was especially socially awkward then. I didn't know how to have a conversation about that, so I just said something like, okay, thanks. And I went back to the van, and I broke the news to the guys, and we were all just like, wait, what? We thought, well, I mean, he must be sick or something. There's got to be an explanation. You know, his family doesn't really like us that much, so they don't want don't to tell what, what's going on. And more and more time went on, and we soon realized that we would never see John again. In a small little town, in a small little church, John just disappeared. One moment, he's teaching our youth group, he's challenging us, he's encouraging us, he's praying for us, and the next, he's just gone. I wonder if you've had experiences like that in your Christian life before. I would guess that the answer to that is yes, at at least in some capacity. You too most likely have encountered and experienced an unexplained change in someone that you thought loved Jesus Christ. I could tell you stories about friends in Bible college, friends in seminary, people I know who used to be pastors, and now, for some reason, It's all done, gone, without any explanation whatsoever, except, of course, for the explanation that God's word gives to us. As we drop back into Mark chapter four and we think about the parable of the soils, we remember that where we are in the gospel according to Mark and in the the story that the story of Jesus's life and ministry that, that Mark is unfolding for us and retelling for us 
based upon the witness of the apostle Peter, we understand, I think you probably know this, but we understand that the Gospels were not written in chronological order, as if one thing always happened right after another. Sometimes they were written like that, but you know how good storytelling works. A good storyteller will take the pieces of the story and compile them together in ways that not only tell the story, but in ways that also teach you a bigger lesson even within that story. And isn't that the word of God? All kinds of layers of teaching that God just keeps pouring out for us. And so as we come then to Mark chapter 4 verses 1 to 20, and we, we come now to the, one of the longest portions of teaching in Mark's gospel. Mark's not really very focused on the words of Jesus quite so much as he is focused on the actions of both Jesus and the actions of those around Jesus. Last week in our passage, when we learned about the response to Jesus's ministry from his family, that his, his family said he was a lunatic, and then we learned about the response of the scribes, the, the, the people that should have known their Bibles well enough to know that this is the Messiah without question, but they not only rejected him, but they attributed his power and his ministry to Satan. If we were to just read Mark's gospel, we would have read that and then we would come to this and we would have read those responses to Jesus and we would have seen the responses already from people that shouldn't have responded to Jesus in the way that they did. The leper, for instance, who broke all norms, cultural norms, because he wanted to get to the man who could heal him and make him clean. The friends who cared so deeply about their paralyzed friend and who are so convinced that Jesus has the power to heal that they tore a hole through a roof and dropped him down in. We've seen these various responses and, and yet we've seen the opposition that Jesus faced in his life and ministry and now Mark wants to help us understand why people have responded the way that they have. That's helpful for us today, at least on two levels. Number one, it's helpful for us today to understand why we might respond the way that we do to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what the right response looks like. And number two, it's helpful for us as we conduct the faithful ministry of spreading the word just like the church in the book of Acts. Because the reality is that, Christian, as you go and sow the seed just like the Lord Jesus Christ did, you too will meet a variety of responses. And so let's look at this parable then. I want to look at it in three parts, but the third part, we'll sort of dig in a little bit more deeper as we think about the purpose or the point of this particular parable that Jesus tells to his disciples. First of all, in verses 1 to 9, we have the telling of the parable itself. So in verses 1 to 9, we see the parable itself. Verses 1 and 2 give us the setting. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. So you'll remember that Mark's emphasis on the life and ministry of Jesus certainly highlights his power uh, to perform miracles, his power to heal, his power to cast out demons, 
But Mark is most especially concerned about his authoritative teaching. That it's not so much the way that you respond to what Jesus can do that determines whether or not you are a disciple and, in other words, a Christian, but it is exactly how you respond to what Jesus has to say that tells whether or not you are a disciple, whether or not you are a Christian. And so we find him again teaching the very thing he was committed to do, and he's back again by the sea. The next sentence tells us a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. In our passage uh, previously, we saw that massive crowds were coming to Jesus, so much so that he was concerned that he was going to get squashed by the crowds, and he told his disciples to get a boat ready, and now he utilizes that boat. So many people are there that it's impossible for him to teach them unless he gets into a boat and goes out into the water a little ways so that they can now all look at him. He assumes the normal position of teaching in those days. He sits down and he begins to teach them, verse 2 says. But he teaches them many things in parables. We talked a little bit about this last week. Last week's passage was the first time that the subject of parables comes up in Jesus' ministry. And it's no coincidence. The reason he begins to teach in parables now is because the leadership's rejection of him has become finalized. The Pharisees have gone out and plotted with the Herodians, seeking how they might destroy Jesus. The scribes are attributing the ministry to Jesus, of Jesus to Satan himself and are therefore committing a sin that is an eternal sin and cannot be forgiven. So it's reached a climax, a crossroads in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he shifts his teaching style to teach not so clearly as he once was, but to begin to teach them in parables or stories that have deeper meanings that only some can understand. And so we have the setting here. And then Jesus begins to tell the story itself in verses three to nine. And he gives us a story that would have been common to them, a story that they could all familiarize themselves with. First, before he does that, he says to them in verse three, listen, behold. You see the repetition of the words there? Listen is a command, and it's actually from the same word that's translated throughout the rest of the passage as hear. It's where we get our English word acoustics from, akuo. And so throughout this entire passage, as you are good Bible studiers, and you're highlighting and marking and indicating repetition of words, it becomes quite clear to you, if you're paying attention to the details, what the whole point here is. This is a story for those who can hear it. So he commands them to listen to him. And then he says, behold, to get their attention. A sower went out to sow seed. Easy setting, right? Even for us around here, we know what it's like to sow seed and wait for a harvest. In those days, they certainly would have related to that. A a guy gets a, uh, indicates that it's the right time of year to pick up his seed bag and he goes out into his field and he goes out to throw the seed around the field and therefore sow the seed. Normal story, normal agricultural life for them. 
But the story continues. Verse 4, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And you hear that story of that unsuccessful seed and where it fell, and you think, well, of course they did. A path is hard-packed dirt, perhaps even stone. And so if seed falls down on hard pack, it's not going to sink down into the ground. And if it doesn't sink down into the ground, then it's just going to be bird food, right? Basic, normal story. Everyone can understand that. And then verse 5, he says, Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not give much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Again, a no-brainer story, right? You know that if you throw seed down on rocky soil that only has a little bit of soil on top of it, perhaps there's a bedrock that's not very many inches underneath the ground with a little bit of soil over the top, you know that seeds need room to grow and turn into plants, and plants need depth of soil so that they can extend their roots, not only to stabilize themselves, but to draw nutrients into the plant so that it can live, right? Easy story. Okay, Jesus, we're with you. Shallow root, sun comes up, the desert sun in Israel is hot and bright. If it doesn't have any depth of soil, if it doesn't have deep roots to draw out the nutrients and the the deep water that's in the ground, then It's going to get scorched, it's going to die, it's going to wither away. Okay, we're with you, Jesus. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Again, the third failed soil is one that makes sense to us. If you try to go plant a garden out in the blackberries, what's going to happen to it? It will be an unsuccessful garden. All you'll yield is a whole bunch of blackberries, which is great, unless you're trying to grow tomatoes or something like that. So so we see this story is pretty simple, isn't it? It, It's actually quite easy to follow. Verse 8 gives us the fourth type of soil and the fourth scenario, and the only one of four that is successful. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Again, easy to understand, right? You throw the the seed on good soil, and that good soil is going to absorb that seed. Now, of course, he's going to cover it up, and he's going to tend it, and all of those types of things. But if it's on good soil, away from the hard path, away from the rocks, away from the thorns, then chances are, based upon the way that God has created the ecosystem to work, you're going to get a crop. And not only will you get a crop, but you'll get a successful crop in this good soil. It yields a variety, three varieties of fruitfulness, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, let me ask you, is that a confusing story? No. No. It certainly would, have been, would not have been confusing to the people that were gathered there listening to Jesus. But let me also ask you, is that a very profound story? I don't think so. You know it's profound because you keep reading. Because you know that the story itself has a deeper meaning. 
But if you go down to the store here and you talk about, yeah, I was planting my garden earlier this spring and I was just throwing seed all over the place and wouldn't you know it, some fell on the, on the hard path and the birds ate it. Others fell where it was rocky and it grew up a little bit and then the sun just choked it out or, or suffocated it, it withered away. And then others went in the thorns and the thorns just grew up around it and choked it out. But then you guess what? Some fell on the good soil and now I've got some crops. The people down there would say, duh, that's how it works. Have a nice day, weirdo. It's a basic, simple story, but notice what Jesus says to them in verse 9. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. One of the most favorite things for Jesus to say after he tells these types of stories. Everybody, or I'm guessing, there could have been some missing ears in the crowd, but everybody in that crowd would have had a pair of these things, right? Ears to hear. And so they would have said, well, I mean, I'm looking around the crowd. I'm seeing a bunch of ears. I think we just heard what you said. It's just that it wasn't really that great. And it's over. That's the story. That's the teaching that Mark records for us. So you can imagine then that if the crowds hear this, they might not have been particularly impressed and they dispersed at some point. Maybe some of them are saying, man, we traveled all the way from southern Israel to hear a story about seed sowing? This is the guy that's been casting out demons? This is the guy that they say is the most authoritative teacher they've ever heard and he tells a story about sowing seeds? I guess I'll just go home and... Sow my own seeds. And so we have the parable itself. And then in verses 10 to 12, we begin to understand the purpose of the parables in general. Verse 10 says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Ah, now we're beginning to understand. As the readers of the gospel of Mark, we can see back to that story that Jesus told. The crowds are gone. Jesus is by himself. But that same group of people, along with the 12 who sat around him in the house that he was in, the house that his family stood outside of and tried to call him out of, the house where the scribes assaulted him and told him that he was possessed by Satan, Within that very same house, there was a group of people that sat around him. And do you remember what Jesus said they were doing? It's his family, he said, that does the will of God. And so now Mark is putting the camera back on this group of people that sit around Jesus. And if you're not paying much attention, if you're reading too quickly, you can just say, well, what's the big deal? They're sitting around Jesus. But do you remember what discipleship means? It means to be a dedicated learner, which would involve sitting around and listening to the one that you're following. You see, this crowd, along with the 12, the, the ones who sit around Jesus, notice Mark tells us again that they are around him. Mark is explaining to us 
what discipleship really means. Why would that be significant? Well, it would be significant in the ministry of Jesus Christ because there were people that were plotting to kill him. And then there were people that were devoted to him and his teaching. But we fast forward to 2022 and it would be significant because there are people who say, I'm a Christian. And yet they have no interest in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the significance of this. And so Jesus begins to explain to them the purpose of the parables themselves. In verse 11, he answers their question. And he said to them, to you, who's the you there? Well, verse 10 says it's those who are around Jesus along with the 12. So that's the you he's talking to there. To you, it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, the secret or the mystery. It's one of the words that Paul likes to use. He uses it 21 times throughout his epistles, the mystery that God has now revealed. It doesn't refer to a Sherlock Holmes novel or something that you have to investigate and figure out. What it refers to in the scriptures is something that was once hidden that God has now revealed. But you'll notice that it's not been revealed to everyone, has it? It's been revealed here, Jesus says, to those who were around him and to the twelve. And so it makes sense why they were around him then, doesn't it? Because something had been revealed to them that is true about Jesus that had not been revealed to everyone else. The reality that the kingdom of God, as Jesus said all the way back at the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God was at hand because the time was fulfilled. The king had come, the king had come to establish his kingdom, and he is establishing that kingdom as he saves souls. It's a spiritual kingdom so far, and one day when he returns, it will be a physical, visible kingdom. And not only does Jesus say to them that this secret of the kingdom of God has been revealed, but he says there's another group. He says, but for those outside, which should trigger your mind to being outside of the house that you just read about in Mark chapter 3. Oh yeah, there were people standing outside and they didn't want to go in. They called Jesus out to them because they thought they had more authority than Jesus. To those outside, everything is in parables. And then you come to verse 12. And you have what is here a purpose clause. In other words, verse 12 explains why everything is in parables to those who are outside. And then you read these words, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Do you feel the sharpness of that sword? Wait a minute. Jesus, you're saying to those of us around you 
You've revealed the secret of the kingdom of God. But what you're saying is that those who are outside, like the scribes and the Pharisees, and even at this point, Jesus' own family, you're telling me, Jesus, that you're speaking in parables so that they will hear you with their ears, but they won't understand with their minds. And they'll see you with their eyes, but they won't perceive with their heart. That's what you're telling me, Jesus? And Jesus says, yes. It's exactly what I'm telling you. Well, why would you speak that way, Jesus? Because if I spoke in a way that they could understand, they would turn and be forgiven. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Does Jesus not want everyone who was hearing him to turn and be forgiven? I mean, I, I could have sworn that was the goal of the church, right? Does God not desire that none should perish, but that all should believe? Well, then how can Jesus teach his disciples that he speaks in parables because there are some people that he does not want to turn and forgive. And therein lies part of the mystery, doesn't it? How does the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man in salvation come together or do they come together? Is the Bible some disjointed work that has been written by man so that at at one point we can read Mark chapter 4 and hear Jesus say to us, I speak in parables because to those who are outside, I don't want them to understand. I don't want them to perceive because it's not my will that they should turn from their sins and be forgiven. And then we read later on in the Bible that God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to life in him. Is it some disjointed book that speaks out of both sides of its mouth? No. But the reality is that the plan of God in salvation is so complex. The wisdom of God is so unsearchable that God condescends to use human language to be able to say, there are some people I will save and there are some people I will destroy. I had a professor once who said that if you think that is unfair, then God is calling you to be a missionary. Get going. We have to be careful. We can't push that too far. We have to remember that this is the words of Jesus, and the scriptures are the words of Jesus. That these things are not contradictory, but they are complementary. Spurgeon used to say, when asked about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in salvation, does God save or do I have to choose? He would say, uh, when someone asked him how to reconcile those things, he would say, you don't reconcile, friends. Does God save sovereignly and completely in salvation all by his own sovereign will? Yes. Do you have to decide to follow Jesus? Do you have to decide to put your faith in Jesus? Yes. How do those work together? I don't know. The Bible says it, so I just believe it. 
And there's a whole lot of peace in that, isn't there? Because it, it teaches you to respond and to rely not on yourself, but on God who saves. First of all, for your own soul, but then for the souls of those that you love. You know how it is when you're pleading with God for the souls of a loved one, family member or friend, when you've shared with them till you're blue in the face, when you've wept in front of them and they just remain stoic and you just want so badly to make them believe. Isn't the sovereignty of God a great comfort to know that it's my responsibility to share, but only God can save. If I did what I'm supposed to do, then I can go to sleep and I can sleep soundly because God will do what he is supposed to do. And so Jesus teaches us that the purpose of the parables is both to reveal the truth about the kingdom of God and to conceal the truth about the kingdom of God. Now, I would remind you in context that this points most specifically and most especially to the scribes who were saying that Jesus' ministry is attributed to Satan. That's who he's talking about here as those who are outside. But he's also seemingly talking about his own family as those who are outside which is a little bit encouraging because Mary was just having a bad moment in that day. Mary knew by pronouncement of an angel who Jesus was. And later, at least James and Jude would come to faith in Jesus Christ, even though they stood as outsiders. So it's not as though we can figure out when it is that God gives someone entirely over to their sin to the point where he no longer reveals anything, but in fact conceals everything. Only God knows that. Praise him for that. It's not our job to try to figure that out. It's our job to sow the seed of the word and let God do what he wants to do. Whether it's reveal the truth about Jesus or to conceal the truth about Jesus in judgment upon them for their rejection. That's up to him. And it's good news that we can leave it in his hands, isn't it? And so we have the parable, we have the purpose of the parable, and now in verses 13 to 20, we have the point of this parable. The point of this parable. Verse 13, Jesus begins to explain the importance of this particular parable to his disciples. He says, uh, it says, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Every time I read a question like that from Jesus to his disciples, I always feel like the dog who got scolded a little bit. Oh man, Jesus, I don't know if I understand. I'm in their shoes. I'm a dummy too. But I want to point out to you the key here. Everyone else had gone home, hadn't they? But these folks stuck around and they asked questions to Jesus. You only ask a question if you're interested in an answer, right? You see, the key here is that they wanted to know more. They heard the simple, bland story about a sower sowing seed, and they thought, huh, there's got to be something more to this. I want to go ask Jesus. And that's what a disciple does. They read their Bible and they think, huh, there's got to be something more. I'm going to go and ask Jesus. 
And so Jesus says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the other parables. That's the significance of this parable. And it's the significance of why Mark includes this parable, and he does so in 20 verses, which he does not do except for one other time about the teaching of Jesus. Because it's the crown jewel of the parables. Why? Because it's all about whether or not you hear the word. And what type of hearing you hear the word with. And that's the key. What is the word? It's the gospel that Jesus has been preaching. It's all about the way that your heart responds to the gospel. That's the point of this particular parable. In verse 15, 16, and 18, we will encounter the word here as we work through this passage, and then we will encounter the word here in verse 20 as well. In verses 15, 16, and 18, you're going to love this. It's in the aorist tense. Can I get an amen? There we go. It's in the aorist tense, but in verse 20, it's in the present tense. In the aorist tense, it's a punctiliar. It's, a, it's something that happens at one point in the past, but it doesn't continue on. But in the present tense, it's something that always happens. So there's different types of hearing that's highlighted here. So let's get into these different types of hearing then. And I think as we explore these different types of hearing and we understand that the purpose or the point of this parable is to reveal the hearts of the listeners of the word of Jesus, I think it's most helpful then that we think about it in that way. So first of all, in verse 15, as Jesus explains the parable for us, we see the hard heart. The hard heart in verse 15. Verse 14, of course, says the sower sows the word. Verse 15, and these are the ones, the seed, along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So Jesus is explaining that what he meant by the seed that falls on the stony or or the, the hard path that the birds come and snatch up, what he's telling his disciples is, what I mean by that is that the word falls on their hard hearts so that it does not go down but stays on the surface and immediately upon hearing the word, Satan himself comes like an ugly raven snatches that word away, and that's it. They've got no time to consider it. Their hearts are too hard to think about the word of God. Their hearts are too hard to think about the gospel of God. They are entirely unreceptive to the word in any significant way, in any way at all. And so it falls on their hearts. You notice that the word still falls on them. When you share the gospel with someone and they they remain stoic or they tell you to get lost, the word still falls on them. But it's as an act of judgment, not an act of salvation. So it falls on the hard heart and Satan comes and he snatches it away so that nothing even has a chance to grow up in that hard heart. 
And then in verses 16 to 17, we have the superficial heart. The superficial heart. Verse 16 says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And now we're thinking, okay, great. They contrasted to the immediacy of Satan's taking away the word, they receive it immediately with joy. That's good, right? They're excited about the gospel. They receive it immediately. When you share it, you're almost like, whoa, can this really be real? Like, I've never had someone accept it so quickly. They're hugging you. They're thanking you. They're saying, oh, thank you so much for sharing that with me. This is the best news I've ever heard. But then verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, just superficial. Something springs up. The plant grows, but there's nothing underneath the ground, the part where you can't see. The part you can see, you notice something. But the part you can't see, you don't notice anything until what you can't see becomes what you can see by its death. He says, verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word immediately, they fall away. Now notice, they receive it with joy. It springs up, but there's no root And then, when life gets hard, when tribulation comes, when life squeezes them in its vice, or when persecution comes, notice what the persecution is on account of, on account of that very same word which they once received with joy, the the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they start to say, you know what? You can't actually define whatever gender you want to be or whatever thing you want to be. God created man and women. And when the world around them says, you're a fool, how dare you? How dare you not allow someone to be what they want to be? Don't you love? And they start to think, oh man, maybe they're right. Maybe I don't love. Maybe I need to just join the crowd. It gets hard for them and they say, you know what? This Jesus thing, it's for the birds. Come on, Satan. Snatch it away. But notice, Jesus doesn't give us a whole lot more than that, does it? They fall away, but we don't know if they stop saying that they're a Christian. How many churches dot the landscape of this nation and and likely every other? that claim to be a church which belongs to Jesus Christ, and yet doctrinally and practically they mock and blaspheme the word of God. They fly a rainbow flag or something like that. Or they say, you know what, there are parts of the Bible that you know, were culturally relevant then, but God doesn't really now expect that a wife be submissive to her husband and a husband be the head of the home and be the one that leads by loving his wife. God doesn't expect that. God knows things have changed. You see, it, it, 
becomes quite complex if you really push down into it, doesn't it? But those are the soil, or that's the soil that represents the superficial heart. It never really took root. Even though you watched and you thought, wow, they are on fire for the Lord. And then one day you go to pick them up for a conference and they say, yeah, I'm done. And then the third failed soil that we see is the distracted heart in verses 18 to 19. The distracted heart, verses 18 to 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I want you to notice a couple of things about the distracted heart. First of all, let's just begin at the end there. Jesus says it proves to be unfruitful. But unfruitfulness implies some type of growth, doesn't it? If you have a fruit tree that grows up but is unfruitful, you still have the tree, you just don't have the fruit, right? You still have what looks to be a professor of Jesus Christ, not in the one who professes in that sense, not like a, you know, a PhD or something. Someone who professes, yeah, I belong to Jesus. But when you look at their life, you say, you do? I didn't know Jesus was cool with that kind of thing. I didn't know Jesus appreciated people talking that way, living that way, doing those things. So there's a tree there, it just has no fruit. Why does it have no fruit? Well, because it's distracted. Notice the progression here in these soils. First it's hard, then it's rocky, and and there's some growth there. But now it becomes thorny so that it's not just what's underneath the soil, like rocks or, or hard packed down, but it's what's on top of it. So you get some growth, but then what's on top of it grows up around it. And, and notice too, Jesus doesn't just say that it's, uh, it's the, the world, verse 19. He doesn't just say, but the world and riches and other things enter into it, but he describes those things more specifically, doesn't he? He says it's the cares of the world. That's helpful for us. Do you know why? Because you and I have cares of the world. We navigate them every single day. You're doing it now. It's a regular habit of life. That is life. And then he describes riches, not just as riches, but the deceitfulness of riches. That old harlot, Babylon, promises you if you just make more money things will be so much better for you yeah it's maybe not the best choice maybe not the best work environment but it'll give you a good stable position for a while it'll get you what you need you might have to You know, it's not really compromise, but you might have to close your mouth here and there. Just go for it. And then, as if that's not enough, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. You notice what Jesus does there? He's specific about two of them, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and then he goes general. 
As if to say, and any other thing you might encounter that would choke out your interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Starts to hit a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? Who among us at one point in time has not been distracted by something? Who among us has put our Bible down or walked out of Sunday school or walked out of corporate worship and within just a few minutes said, man, what were we just talking about in there? I mean, I remember thinking it was really good, but I don't, I don't remember what God wanted me to do with that. My friend, you know what that is? That's exactly what Jesus is describing right here. We all face that temptation, don't we? And so we have to be on guard and we have to be vigilant. There's a responsibility that comes with hearing. I don't know if you realize this, but hearing is actually active rather than passive. It's not sitting down and just turning things off and thinking to yourself, well, this better be good. I got a potluck to get to. But it's sitting down, tuning in, focusing on what God has to say to you through his word and by his spirit. Who among us has not failed to do that in the proper way? I'll be the first to say I'm guilty of that at times. I don't even always listen to myself up here. I'm just kidding. But notice what happens that that's not a time-to-time experience for this particular soil. That's not a time-to-time experience for the distracted heart. It's an ongoing response for the distracted heart. They show up, they come to Sunday school, they sit in the pew, but their hearts are not engaged. They can tell you everything you need to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you can't see how it has shaped their lives. They don't serve people. They don't sacrifice They just come. Give me, give me, give me. Okay, thanks. I'm going home. Next week, give me, give me, give me. Okay, thanks. I'm going home. I got other things to do. You know, uh, work's been hectic. I got to do some things today. If you have to do some work today, it's okay. I'm not saying you're sinful, okay? I just want to clarify that. The point here is that there's no meditation on the word of God. And that's the problem. As soon as the Bible is done speaking, their heart is gone. That was a great service. See ya. So we have then the hard heart, the superficial heart, the distracted heart, and yet there's one more heart. But I would point out to you, there have been four different types of soils revealed to us, right? Revealing four different types of hearts. How many of them have proven to be bad? Three. That's not great odds, is it? 75% ineffective so far is the word in this parable. 75% ineffective. It's shocking, isn't it? 
I think it's best explained by Jesus himself. John chapter 15, verses 5 to 9, you know it. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How many of these soils are actually Christian? One. The good soil. Jesus says, if you don't bear fruit, you're not my disciple. You're cut off, you're thrown into a pile, you're gathered together, you're thrown into the fire. So far, he's told us that none of these soils have produced any fruit whatsoever. And then we come to the final heart, the converted heart in verse 20. The converted heart in verse 20. There he says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word. And this is where the present tense comes. They always hear the word. They live a lifestyle of hearing the word. What they want most is to hear the word. And they accept it. Paul praises, the, praises God that the Thessalonians accepted the word of God for what it is, the word of God, not the word of man. They accept it. They say, this is my food. Keep telling me, Jesus. Keep teaching me. I'm loving it. I need it. And as a result, they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. You notice there's a variety of fruit bearing, isn't there? And praise God for that. Because sometimes it gets discouraging to see how much better at other things other people are. Am I the only one? Like, man, I wish I could do that. That looks so easy for them. Takes me like forever to get up the courage to talk like that. That's why I prayed that the Lord would not let us covet the fruit of others. Because your Lord has sovereignly determined how much fruit you will bear and it will be pleasing to him. Whether it's 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold, John 15 tells you that Jesus' Father, your Father, is glorified by the fruit that you bear, no matter how much fruit it is. And so we have then the converted heart, the heart that receives the word and then shows the reality of their reception by the fruit that they bear in their lives. But I would remind you, those other fruit, or the, the, those other soils, they had some growth. And I don't know how long they grew for. Maybe it was a couple of months. Maybe it was a couple of years. Maybe it was a couple of decades. But ultimately, the trajectory, the long-term reality of their life revealed that I guess whatever happened was not actually genuine. But I would also remind you, because I know you're trying to filter that through the lens of the people that you know and love. I am too. I would also remind you that we don't know 
what type of heart someone else has. Only Jesus knows that. It's our responsibility not to label them according to whatever heart we think that they have. It's our responsibility to love them by speaking the truth to them, even if that truth is difficult. Because that truth is the only truth that saves the sinner. And so we have the hard heart, the superficial heart, the distracted heart, the converted heart, and I would remind you once again who it is that Jesus is teaching this parable to. Not everyone. He's teaching it to the people who sat around him and to the 12 whom he had chosen. He's teaching it to you this morning. And he wants at least one of two things. First of all, he wants you to assess yourself according to which soil is in you, which heart is in you. How do you do that? You do it based upon your receptivity to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the word of God. Do you keep hearing the word of God? And I don't mean hear it like it goes one ear or goes in one ear and out the other. I mean, it enters into your ears, goes straight to your heart, and you find it to be the nourishment that your soul needs. That is the response that a disciple gives to his or her Lord. This is the word of God. So we need to figure out which soil we are with the Lord's help, of course, But then secondly, for those of us who are the good soil, for those of us who have the converted heart, we need to remember the teaching of this parable because the reality is as you live your life as being that good soil, you too will be a sower of seed and you too will experience various responses to that sowing of the seed. You will want so desperately for someone to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there will be times when they will not. And then there will be times when they do and then they walk away and your heart is shattered. But there will be times when perhaps even they have walked away that they will come back and they will say, boy, I was wrong. I was a knucklehead. I was a fool. Forgive me. There will be times When they receive it, they accept it, and they bear fruit. We don't know which experience we will experience, but we know we will have one of those experiences. We know that the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ is to build his church. We know that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is to accomplish everything he pleases and everything he promises. This is a warning to us, but it's also a great encouragement and comfort to our hearts. So I pray that this seed today would fall on good soil and that our heavenly father would be pleased and glorified by the fruit that is born in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word. We love you, we worship you, we ask for your help. We confess that we sometimes respond with 
wrong soil. Even though we might be good soil, we sometimes allow thorns to come in and choke us out, choke out our interest in the word. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us repentance where that is found, and that also you would give us the conviction, the deep-seated conviction to make you and your word and your gospel our greatest treasure. This we pray in your name. Amen.